Some of you who were here a couple years ago uh, know this may be a, a sign. Uh, we went through a series called Elephants in the Room a few years ago, and you know when an elephant is in the room, it's usually a topic that's um, difficult to talk about, but one that's probably necessary to address, because if it comes up in Scripture, then it's probably something that that we shouldn't avoid, but bring out into the open and have a conversation about. So if you have your Bibles with me, we have been journeying this year through the Gospel of Mark. And today we land in chapter 10. So while you're turning there, uh, you can get your core guide out. And there's a space on the front of your core guide to take notes and jot down things that you want to uh, maybe talk through with your, uh, with your core group uh, this week. Chapter 10, let me give you a, a heads up, or three weeks we'll spend in chapter 10. And in the Gospel of Mark, if you are a baseball fan at all or have ever heard any baseball analogies, uh, this is, chapter 10 is like a fastball, up and in. I mean, it, it just brushes you back. So in chapter 10, we deal with Three, three of the biggies, sex, money, and power. And those are typically the three biggies that tend to trip up humans, and we uh, have an overinvestment in any one of those or all three, and it, those are things that tend to uh, cause us to sin. So, as we arrive in chapter 10, uh, the Pharisees come and they... They want to get Jesus' interpretation uh, on a dispute that they've been having for a while. And so as we come into today's text, the Pharisees come and they dump the divorce question in front of Jesus. Is it lawful for somebody to get divorced? And in a minute when we read this, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So all week long, as you can imagine, um, I've been a little uneasy about standing up here this morning uh, and working through this. Um, you, you, for those of you who know me, I don't dodge things that are in the text. This would have been a very easy one to skip over, but we don't, we don't do that. It's there in front of us to talk about, and I know that the moment that I speak that word out loud, there is a wash of emotions that rip through your soul. Uh, most of us would say that whether it's us personally or a family member, a relative, uh, or a close friend, uh, every one of us has been touched by divorce in some way, shape, or form. And so when, when we address this in this particular state, anywhere really, there's uh, maybe anger that rises up, uh, sadness, um, it's reminders of days that have gone by that just were hurt, that were hurtful and painful. I read uh, a story of a, of a woman who every time the word would come up she said it, it felt like I just was 
there and somebody was dumping garbage all over me. Every time I showed up in church and it came up, it felt like I was wearing a, a big scarlet letter D around my neck. And so coming into this, I'm, I'm aware of all of that. And so what I want you to hear in today's message is, is twofold, really. Um, for those of you who are married, whether happily married or you would admit that there are struggles, uh, or you are thinking about getting married at some time in the future, particularly you young ones, um, there's part of Jesus' message that is preventative. He teaches us some things about what God designed marriage to be. And for those of you whose worlds have been rocked or torn apart by divorce in some way, I, I don't want you to hear any shaming or guilting. What I want you to hear in Jesus' message is one of uh, restoration. There's a preventative element and there's a restorative element. And so I would ask, would you stand with me? We're in Mark chapter 10. And I'm going to start in verse 1. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. Well, they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this, and he answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant, and he said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and he placed his hands on them and he blessed them. It's the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Well, I was doing a little reading this week and a statistic kind of just popped out at me. I, I read that 39% of those surveyed, and this was a study done by the Pew Research Company, fairly reputable outfit, 
They surveyed, surveyed 3,000 people or so. 39% of these people that they surveyed said that they believed marriage was obsolete. I didn't know how to take that for a few minutes. I had to wrestle with that one for a while because at first I was very shocked. 39% marriage obsolete. But as I thought about the casual nature of relationships these days, the teaching out in society that you can get in and out of things quite easily, as I thought about all of those close to me who have struggled through divorces, as I thought about all the kids that I know who get tossed back and forth between households, uh, as I thought about all of those things and the pain that was sometimes associated with, with marriage and it's f- being fractured, it, didn't, it no longer surprised me that that many people would say it's obsolete because why would one want to invest in something that is the source of so much pain. Last week when we were ending, uh, we, we, we were talking about the text where Jesus said, if your hand causes you to sin, whack it off. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, you pluck it out. <clears throat> That's a hard text too, right? <laughs> I would put today's even higher. It's one of the hard, hard sayings of Jesus. But we identified that maybe Jesus was giving us a couple ways to respond. There's the way of the axe. When we see something wrong in the world, we get out, we get out the hatchet, we get out the big old axe, and we just whack away at it. So if we see sin out in the world, or we have friends who are struggling through things like this, there's one way to go about it, and the, one of the ways would be the way of the axe, and we get, we get the axe out and we just start chopping away. You need to fix yourself up. But there's a much more gracious Jesus way of responding, and we identified that as the way of the cold water. One, one cup of cold water. Extending love and grace and mercy to people who are parched and thirsty and broken. And I pray every day that this church, this body, that you and I are people that would follow the way of the cold water instead of the way of the axe. Now, historically, on a couple issues dealing with sexuality, uh, the church has failed. We, for a long time, leaned into the thou shalt not method of removing sin from our lives. It's evidenced in you know, how we, for years, taught um, about human sexuality, uh, about uh, protecting that as something that's reserved for marriage. And we went around and we waved our bony fingers at our youth and we said, don't do it, sex is bad. Well, that's not actually true. 
God made that as an awesome gift for us, right? And so at points along the way, kids have experimented and they found out that, oh, you said sex was bad and mm, what I've experienced doesn't match up with what you've taught. And so now it looks like we've been lying all the way along because we haven't been painting the right picture. We haven't filled in the beautiful thing that God created it to be and that it is so awesome and so wonderful that it is something that should be, ought to be protected for the bounds of marriage in which he designed it to be. The church has also kind of failed when dealing with people whose worlds have been rocked by divorce. We get the bony finger out, thou shalt not. For a long time, and in many places, people that I know have been wounded by the church that should be a place where you could come and find healing. That you should, yes, you should be challenged in your spirit and convicted of sin in your life when, when we sing and when we preach because the Holy Spirit does his work in our life. Yes, you can be convicted while you're in this place, but a church is supposed to be a place where we care for one another. And we've gotten the bony finger out sometimes, and we said, thou shalt not. And so the way that that comes around is like a ton of bricks to somebody who is struggling, who has, who has been divorced, or who has witnessed it, or is a child of a, of a divorced family. And, and, and the church has sometimes excluded from participation people who have struggled with this. The thou shalt not kind of comes across as the way of the acts. And I think underlying Jesus' message is the way of the cold water. So there's three things that, that I want to walk us through today. And um, if, you have, uh, if you have your core guide out and you want to jot these three things down, I want, I want to talk about God's intention for marriage. God's intention for marriage. And then I want to talk about God's permission of divorce. God's permission of divorce. And I want to end by talking about God's provision of grace. God's provision of grace. And all of those three things uh, come out in, in the text that we just read. See, the Pharisees come up to Jesus. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And the conservatives and the liberals had been arguing about that one for decades, hundreds of years, actually. There were, really were two camps on interpreting the law of Moses there was a rabbi, Shammai, who he felt like divorce was only proper and legitimate uh, for matters of uh, adultery, un unfaithfulness uh, between one, between, in, the, in the marriage relationship. There's the other camp, Rabbi Hillel, is kind of the, the main name associated with that one. He was... Um, 
much more open in his interpretation of Moses' law. He, he thought it really could be for any reason. So I think he's known to say, you know what, if she messes up cooking your dinner, a man could show her the door, just give her a certificate of divorce out the door. If a man just came across somebody, oh, she's just more appealing, uh, sorry. So there's these two camps that have been battling one another, and the Pharisees come and, and they want Jesus to pick a side. If you paid attention to the geography of the text that we read, uh, they're, they're in an area where John the Baptist used to practice his ministry. And if you flip back over to chapter 6, and, and you read about why John the Baptist lost his life, it was because he was preaching about divorce and adultery all the way up to, into Herod's household. And they didn't like it so much. And so in this culture, especially among the upper class and the elites, divorce was, was actually fairly common. And so the Pharisees come and they're trying to, Mark says they came because they're trying to test him. They're trying to trick him into taking a side. And so if, if the people really want a more liberal, open understanding of being able to divorce your spouse, and Jesus would choose to be a hardliner, which if you read about Jesus' teaching, you know he takes a harder line than any reason is legitimate. Well, if we can get him to say that out loud in front of a huge crowd, maybe that's something that will start to turn the tide in our favor. So it's really a trap that they set before him, and they want to drag Jesus into this debate, but at a deeper level, the passages in this section of Mark um, have to do with a life that's centered on the law as opposed to a life centered on the Lord. So these Pharisees are, they find their righteousness in, in following the law. It comes up in this story. Uh, next week we talk about um, a, a rich guy who wants to figure out where he's at in his status with the law. I've followed all the law. What else do I need to do? Well, how can I earn or buy my way into the kingdom? So Mark is setting these stories before us because the Pharisees are kind of leaning towards finding their righteousness in the law, and, and Jesus is saying, no, you find that, you find that in the Lord. So Jesus' answer to their question has nothing to do with the law at all. He kind of just takes a step to the side, and he, he goes back further than the law. He goes all the way back to creation. The Pharisees were trying to use the law as an escape. How can I divorce my wife and still be considered righteous by the law? What can I, what can I get away with and still be good? They thought the law would would determine that, and Jesus challenges their motives, and he goes all the way back to God's intention. Now let's, let's look at what God first intended for marriage at its very highest standard. What is it supposed to be? And so that when we go back to the Genesis account in, in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, 
you kind of notice three things, that marriage is about the image of God, that, that marriage is about the fittedness of, of male and female, the complementary nature of, uh, of male and female. And, and then and the creation stories way back at the beginning of Genesis about marriage are about the two that are uniting into one flesh. And Jesus quotes from both Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24 in in the passage that that we read. And and Genesis 1.27 says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The first picture that we get in Scripture of what God is like is a picture of a man and a woman who live together in fellowship with God. All the characteristics of God are, are seen in their relationship together. There's, there's strength, there's protection, there's loving sacrifice, there's provision, there's mercy, there's compassion, there's, there's faithfulness. You can't just observe all these characters in, in a box. You, God created them to be seen in a marriage, to be lived out in a marriage. When we look at two people in marriage We ought to have the image of God laid out in front of us. He reveals himself through healthy marriages. The image of God is present. That's the intent. The second thing in Genesis is he made man and woman to be fitting. There's a fittedness about male and female. Genesis uh, 2 to 18 says, The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now that's, a, uh, that's a, one of the verses that's gotten us in trouble. That's um, been tragically misinterpreted to make it sound like a woman takes an inferior or subordinate place to a male. And that is absolutely false. The Hebrew word that is used here that Moses puts into this text is the the Hebrew word ezer. And the the most accurate translation of the word ezer is is, um, to correspond with or corresponding to. So it's a a complementary kind of fitting together as equal partners. Uh, it's, um, (laughs) It's biologically obvious, you could say, that the male and female bodies are fitted. They're complementary. That's God's design. But it's, but it's not just about physical bodies. It's about the complementary corresponding nature uh, of our, our physical nature, our spiritual, emotional, psychological. All of those pieces, male and female, are designed for a fittedness, a, a coming together. They're complementary in nature. And the third thing that we see in Genesis is, is that there's this concept of the two uniting and becoming uh, one flesh. This is the verse that I mentioned in Genesis 2.24. That is why when man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. I, uh, I am not good at it, nor do I have the tools to do it, but several of you are very good woodworkers. And I admire uh, the dovetail joint. You know, those drawers that, you know, they're just kind of fitted together. And I don't know how it's done. Like, different 
angled cuts is what I can imagine. Uh, I have no idea how you do that. So those of you who can do that, well done. I'd like to admire that. But I was thinking about that kind of a joint in terms of marriage. Because you, when you take a dovetail joint on a drawer and you put it together and you glue it together, you don't get that drawer apart without breaking the boards, right? It is a joint that is meant for permanency. It's two becoming one piece. Distinct, yes, but they come together as one and it's a bond of permanence. And that's the same way that we ought to think. That's the way that God designed marriage to be, that two male and female come together as, as one in a relationship uh, that has permanency as part of it. They're not intended to separate or, or ever stand apart on their own again. This is God's image for marriage. Uh, it's his desire, it's his will, it's his plan, and it's a good plan. To exalt his image, to fit together, and to be united as one. So when the Pharisees come and they question Jesus about the law and about divorce, Jesus supersedes the law by appealing back to God's intention for marriage when he created it way back in the beginning. And therefore, he says, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So Jesus talks about God's intention for marriage. But then there's this reference to Moses, and there's an identification of God's permission of divorce. Jesus, walking around the face of the earth, well, he, he showed up on earth because humans, we, weren't, we just weren't getting it right. There's pain and brokenness, turmoil, it's just a sinful mess that he came to redeem. So he, walk, he is walking around, and he is in the middle of all of this, and so he recognizes that. And when you look at verse 3, Jesus asked them what Moses commanded, and the Pharisees tell him Moses permitted. What Moses permitted. Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce. Now, to give you a hint, the... The Pharisees were not looking for new information. They, they knew the law. They knew Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, 5, like the back of their hand. They weren't asking Jesus, what is the law? They, they knew the law. They wanted Jesus' interpretation of it. As I was thinking about this, the Pharisees were focused they were focused on the end of a relationship. They were focused on the end. You know, I've never officiated a marriage that didn't start off with abounding hope. We're going to be together forever. Never interacted with a couple who got married thinking that, oh, in a few years when it wears out, we're going to never once. The Pharisees were already looking towards the end. What is our out? Just in case, Jesus. And Jesus is saying, no, don't, 
Don't look at the end. That's the wrong way to look about it. Look at the beginning. Look at the intent of the couple when they come together. Look at God's intent for marriage. Let's go back to that point. Look at what was intended before sin entered the world. So Jesus, in his answer, he's still holding up. He's still holding up God's ideal intent for marriage, even knowing that, yes, sin has come into the world and wreaked havoc in our relationships, a lot of pain that has come into the world, and and divorce is one of those things that's a product of, of human sin. And Jesus identifies that as it's because of, it's because of your hard-heartedness. It's because of your pride. It's because of your selfish desire, your selfishness, all of these things that brought sin into the world. These are all the same things that cause you to commit all sorts of thin, sins, but this, this is at the root. Moses wrote you that permission because your hearts were hard. And if you notice, Moses permitted, he didn't command divorce. Mo- Moses wrote laws for when there was, when there was a divorce. And there's, there's a vital principle to illustrate here. And you listen to this closely. God's law and God's will are viewed as different realities here. You've got to think about that one for a while. God's law and God's will are viewed as different realities. They're not contradicting, they're not competing, but they're different. The law, the commands of God, are God's gracious response to our sinful mess. The law is God's loving way of helping us live in a world that's warped by sin. That's why God gave us the law. To help live amongst one another harmoniously, as best we can, in the middle of a sin-filled world. When we are all bent on selfish desire. The law is aimed at protecting us from the effects of sin in our life. The law helps us spot the landmines of sin. It kind of lays it out out there for us. The law is a constant reminder of sinfulness in the world. When there was no sin, there was no law. Before Adam and Eve took the fruit off the tree and sinned against God, there was, the law was not created before that. The law came after sin entered into the world. The law is God's response to sin. It's, it's an accommodation for our sin. So scripture is pretty clear here. God does not will or intend divorce, but because of the hardness of our hearts and the destructiveness of sin, he permitted, he permitted divorce. What he wills and what he permits are clearly not the same thing. His will for us would be going all the way back to his intent for marriage that we outlined just a few minutes ago. That was all in Genesis 1 and 2 before sin entered the world, right? That's God's will, his intent. And he still would take us back there every time. Jesus is taking the Pharisees all the way. He's pointing back to that. Here's the ideal for marriage. Hold it up. Celebrate it. Work for that. Then sin entered the world, and the law happened. 
And so now, because sin rocks our world and messes it up, yes, God's will is still here, but he gives a permission to help us with the consequences of sin. What he wills and what he permits are clearly not the same. It's an act of grace. So you might want to ask the question, I did, well, does that mean that God lowered his standard or changed his intention when Adam and Eve messed it all up? Did he just set aside his ideal and say, well, I guess we got to come up with a plan B now? No. No. Listen to what Jesus says. When the Pharisees ask about divorce, there is an open opportunity to shrug his shoulders and just talk about plan B, but Jesus affirms God's continuing intention for marriage. And the thing that we need to note and to see and to just stare at for a while is that a gracious God is flexible enough to permit divorce rather than have a spouse destroyed by a hard-hearted marriage partner. He permits divorce to keep us from destroying one another, from doing our worst to each other. He makes the best that can be out of a bad situation. I like how Eugene Peterson wrote about it. He said, when we get into situations that are sometimes intolerable, God provides ways for us to get out of them so that the tragic consequences can be limited. Divorce is one of those provisions. We're never abandoned to struggle hopelessly. God provides wisdom, guidance, and merciful exceptions to help us. The permission Moses gave regarding divorce was, in the context of the moral law, a means for realizing mercy so that we aren't forced to live forever with our mistakes or the mistakes of others. Jesus seems to recognize that given human hard-heartedness, divorce will sometimes be necessary, insisting that it should always be acknowledged as a failure, though. He doesn't back away. He takes a hard-line stance on that fact. It's human sin. It's a tragedy. Whether it comes from abuse or neglect or unfaithfulness or whatever, it's tragic. It falls short of what God intended for us. Divorce at its best is never good. It's not right. It's not God's will. But it's graciously permitted out of love for the people involved. Jesus is changing the question on the Pharisees. He says the question is not, how can I get out of my marriage? The question ought to be, how can I fulfill God's intention within my marriage? So there's a permission that extends grace and mercy Jesus doesn't back away and say, it's okay. It's not okay, is what he's saying. But it's not the end. It's not the end. Malachi is pretty forthright in God's opinion of divorce. Malachi says, the words of God, I hate divorce. Jesus doesn't back away from that at all. What Jesus is putting out there is, it's not right. 
but God loves you. He loves you. And he wants to be merciful. And he wants you to know that there is healing and restoration for any sin that we would commit. And that leads us to the provision of grace that's in the text. It's in verses 13 through 16 when we read about the little kids that were coming to Jesus and the disciples wanted to shoo them away. And, and at, out, at the outset, it's, I just find that as a really interesting place to have this story about children. You just have this topic that smacks you. And then you have, the old kids are kind of a buffer like that once in a while. And so Mark says, hey, why don't we have a little story about kids? Why is this little vignette in here, in, the, in this exact part of the text, between a story about divorce and, and a story about, um, you know, a guy trying to buy his way into the kingdom of heaven. What is, what is the motive behind that? But Mark's pretty clear when we read this that Jesus says that the children are in relationship to the Father in the kingdom. Now think about that for a second. The children under 12 years old were not part of the law. They didn't count yet. It was maybe not the age of accountability yet. They were um, naive, innocent. Uh, they had no power. They had no rights in society. And, and Jesus is saying all of these kids who aren't part of the law are already part of the kingdom. The kingdom belongs to these children. They're powerless, no rights, Till they're 12. So these kids who don't center their lives on what is lawful have entered the kingdom. I, I don't know. I think that Jesus is making the point here that, that what we do, that we do not please God through the law. The kids are not part of the law, but yet they're part of the kingdom. And Jesus is saying the kingdom belongs to these. Maybe he's making a statement to the Pharisees who are trying to find their righteousness in the law. He's redirecting them and saying, you're not, you're not going to find your way into the kingdom by being under the law, by following the law. We don't carry our relationship on with God through the law. God's children, God's kingdom people operate on grace. That's what Jesus has just put before us. Let that sink in for a moment. We don't find our way into the kingdom of God by trying to do the law better. We find our way into the kingdom of God 100% through grace. It's by grace that we are saved through faith. It's not by the works of the law. This is God's gift to us. We cannot boast of acceptance with him based on how we uh, keep the law. We, uh, Paul says in Ephesians, we are, uh, his work, we are his handiwork, created by God to do good works, to do his will, to live as he intended us to live. God's kingdom people operate on grace. That's a good spot to sit back and say, thank you, Lord. So, God's prescription for marriage is not to seek lawful grounds for divorce. 
but to live out of his grace, to live out of his resource, to live out of his provision, to experience his power, to, to experience his forgiveness, to seek reconciliation, listening, speaking truth and love. The, the question is not, is it lawful before God, but is there healing that can be found in God? So I would wonder personally if Jesus was here and had the opportunity to talk with somebody who has suffered divorce, what would he say? What would he say? And what's laid out for us in Scripture in like situations would be this. There's a story in John chapter 8. It's probably italicized in your Bibles. Some people don't like to put it there. But there is a story about a woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. And she's brought before Jesus. You know this one? And all the religious guys... They want to know what Jesus is going to do with her because rightfully she should be stoned according to the law. And they're all, they're all holding rocks. And Jesus, he bends down and he writes something in the dirt. And they're after him. What, what should be done? She deserves to die. And what did Jesus say? He said, the one who, has, who is without sin cast the first stone. And the scene goes from anger, finger pointing, thou shalt not. They're ready to swing the axe, although it looks like a rock. Whoever is without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. And everybody knows that they have some kind of sin in their life. And you begin to hear people are dropping their rocks. The dust is coming up off the ground and filling the air. Pretty soon, the scene, John tells us, it's just Jesus and this woman who's in the dirt in front of him. And he says, I see that there are no accusers. There's nobody here left to condemn you. And neither do I. <coughs> neither do I. Go, he said. He acknowledges sin. Go and sin no more. And I think if Jesus were in this room... We're in a conversation with somebody who was struggling with this. He would say something like that. There's other stories that we could point to, but the words of Jesus would come across not backing down from sin, acknowledging that, repenting and confessing, but his words would be of forgiveness and grace. I don't condemn you either. But as you go from here, don't sin anymore.
So where do we go from here? That's about all I have to say about that passage at this point. But I was thinking about this in terms of what the church ought to be. You know, we talked about the way of the axe and the way of the cold water. And I don't think that we as a church have to back down from sin or turn a blind eye. I think we can call it what it is. But I think we need to be the people who go the way of the cold water. Who are willing to say, like Jesus, I don't condemn you. But go, sin no more. If you need help, we can help. So if you are if you are married this morning, this ought to be a wonderful time to hold up that ideal of marriage and have a conversation with your spouse. Maybe it's a little marriage tune-up. Invest time, invest a lot of effort into growing that relationship to be strong and healthy and vibrant. If you're here this morning and you're married and you just feel weight like you're struggling and it's not working and you're missing each other, seek help. Lay your pride down and say, you know what, we're struggling a little bit. There's people in this place who would love to come alongside you and work through things, be mentors. And if you're here and you're just struggling because divorce is part of your story, I want you to know that there's forgiveness, that there is healing, that God's grace is greater than any any of our failures. And where there is the sin of divorce, like there is of any sin that we could commit, Forgiveness is possible for those who would confess it and repent and seek to do better. God is faithful to forgive. There is healing. There is redemption. There is a restoration of your spirit that God meets you in the darkness of your pain. I can assure you of that. God is the one who specializes in raising dead things to new life. And so the darkness of the tomb when Jesus was in it was not the last word on Jesus. The darkness and the pain and the sin in your soul right now doesn't have to be the last word of your story. God will work a miracle and will raise dead things to new life. There's no height, there's no depth in all of creation that can reach beyond God's love for you. His grace is greater. And the people of God said, Amen. Amen. Would you stand for prayer? Sometimes, there's difficult business that we need to attend to um, in prayer before the Lord on our knees. And the space at the front, the, the altar area, is always a good 
a place to do that. Nobody will judge you, nobody will pick on you, but it does create a little bit of a bubble. It's very intentional to slip out of your aisle or your row and, and walk down the aisle. There, there's something that's a little bit intimidating about that. But I would invite you, if you want to come and pray over anything that's going on in your life, it doesn't have to be um, anything that has to do with the message, but it very well might be. That as uh, I'm praying and, and our worship team is going to sing a song, any point at that time, if you just feel like you need to come forward and pray,